This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. At the beginning of 2001, the story of the femicides in Ciudad Juarez had been quiet for several years. Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif, the intellectual author of the serial murders and his alleged co-conspirators, Los Rebeldes and Los Toltecas, were all behind bars. Nobody with any sense actually believed that these men were behind the femicides. But the Potemkin village created by the authorities was enough to quiet the city's outrage against their mismanagement of the investigation. But in February 2001, there would be a shocking new crime in Juarez that signaled a shift in the pattern of the femicides and inaugurated a decade of unprecedented violence along the border. That day was February the 14th. She asked me for bus money in the morning. I didn't take her because I had a school event. I had her kids with me. She gave me a bottle for Caleb and left. She should have arrived home at about 8 at night. She would cross the avenue and walk about 300 meters from the factory to the bus stop. And... Ale never arrived. At 8 o'clock, I thought she had missed the bus. I called her work to find out if she had stayed to work overtime, but when she stayed, she would usually call me. Come pick me up at this time. I'm going to stay today. She hadn't called me on that day. So I first said, it's February 14th, so they went out to eat something. She had told me that she was going to celebrate February the 14th with her co-workers. But she had told me the celebration was going to be on Friday. That day was Wednesday. So I thought, did they change the date or did I misunderstand? At midnight? I thought it was just too late. She had a little notebook where she kept the phones of some of her co-workers. And her friend told me, no, that Alejandra went home. 
We all did, she said. Then another co-worker said she didn't have money with her. I lent her money for the bus. I'm talking about like one in the morning. She had a boyfriend. I said, this girl is with a boy. I mean, like angry, right? I call the boy and the boy tells me, no ma'am, I work the night shift. She's in the morning and I'm in the evening. When she left, he would be starting to work. Then I started to worry. At 6 a.m., I started to look for her at hospitals, at police stations. On the night of Valentine's Day, 2001, witnesses saw Norma Andrade's daughter, Lilia Alejandra Garcia Andrade, walking towards her bus stop through an abandoned field near the Promex Plastics Maquiladora, where she worked. It was the last time the 17-year-old mother of two would be seen alive. Perhaps. I was arriving home, and my neighbor comes up to me and says, don't be scared, but they just found a girl. And she told me where they found her and that her features match my daughter's. They haven't said who she is yet, so I went to Semefo. No, it was the amphitheater at UACJ. Where the city's forensic lab was located at the time. I arrive and I ask them for the agent, and I ask her, is it my daughter? She says no. And then I tell her, is she wearing school socks? Then she says no. I asked, is she wearing no-show socks? She said, no. So I said, then she's not my daughter because she'd be wearing socks like that. That's all she owns. They didn't let me in to see her. The one who came in was my brother. I was already sure it wasn't her until I saw my brother leave. Only by the look on his face, I knew she wasn't in my daughter. He came up to me and said, does Ali have a, a scar by her belly button? And I said, yes. Then my brother hugged me. The autopsy report showed that Lilia Alejandra had died roughly 24 hours earlier after several days in captivity. The 17-year-old had been tortured and raped before she was strangled by her captors. Forensic examiner Oscar Maynes. Lilia Alejandra's case is important because it illustrates how organized the femicides were or are. She disappeared on a February 14th, and we found her body on February 21st, I think, less than 24 hours after she died which means she spent at least six days in a kidnapping situation where she was confined but was not being attacked. It's like they were holding her for someone else or I'm not sure. The dynamics is hard to understand. She had been awfully abused and apparently she had eaten well. It all points to someone arriving after she had food and taking her away and that's when she was raped and murdered. So, these tell us it is well organized. 
someone kidnaps them, someone keeps them, and then hands them to someone else. This is not some crazy guy who's kidnapping and murdering women. This is something more organized. Reports soon emerge of a call that had been placed to the city's emergency hotline four days after Lilia Alejandra's disappearance. A report published by Amnesty International describes how residents near the Promex Plastic Waste Ground called police to report a woman who was being raped in a car on the vacant lot near the factory. After several more calls, police finally sent a patrol car to the scene. When officers arrived shortly before midnight, the car, the woman, and the men who were assaulting her were nowhere to be found. Police returned to the station and filed a statement on the incident. Nothing to report. The following morning, Lily Alejandra's body would be found just a few yards away. The only thing that can be established, and they didn't establish that very well, was the time of death. But it does match a call that somebody made to 060, in which a lady says she was watching how a girl was being beaten in a car, and she could tell the girl was naked. I don't know if that was Alejandra or not, but at least this girl could have been helped. When they finally arrived about three hours after the lady did those calls, of course the car was already gone. If the authorities had acted, perhaps it would be another story. We had a wake for my daughter from the 22nd to the 23rd. On the 23rd, we buried her. And that was when a very different fight started. Something that, that one can't even imagine. Because you think that the authorities are there to help you, to support you, to actually investigate who murdered our daughters. And you really do realize that's not true. You face a reality that is very different to what you imagine. I'm an elementary school teacher. I used to teach civic education to my students. I told my students that we were all equal before the law, that no matter what our condition was, no matter what our social status was, if we were rich or poor, if we were white, black or brown, nothing mattered that we were all equal before the law. And oh, the disappointment. That's when I realized that's not true, that for the mothers of our murdered girls, there is no justice. Because the road we travel is a very hard road. This is episode six of The Red Note, the Cottonfield case. My name is Lydia Cacho.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In the weeks following Lilia Alejandra Garcia's death, Promex Plastics announced a reward for tips that would help investigators track down the individuals who were responsible for her disappearance and murder. After being bombarded with calls, authorities told the local press that the company's reward announcement was irresponsible. According to leaked documents, the FBI later received a tip that Lilia Alejandra's murder had been carried out by a well-known drug dealer and several hitmen operating out of a TV repair shop near the site where her body was found. Before going to the FBI, the tipsters had contacted Sully Ponce, who was leading the investigation into the serial murders, but said they were ignored. Ponce believed that circus performers near the Promex Plastics plant, where Lilia Alejandra worked, may have been involved in her death. When one of the circus employees alleged that Ponce had tried to bribe them into implicating fellow performers in the murder, she dropped the investigation. Norma Andrade, met with Sully Ponce shortly after Lilia Alejandra's body was discovered. When I spoke to the lady, it had been four days since they found her, and she told me that I was lucky. I made the exact same face you just made, and I told her, my daughter was just murdered, and in the worst way possible, and you're telling me I was lucky? Now I understand what she meant, that I had identified my daughter and I was certain it was my daughter that I buried. But I don't think those were the right words or the right time to tell me those words. Thank God I didn't hit her, but I did want to. Activists descended on the Chihuahua State Attorney General's office on International Women's Day in March 2001 to protest Ponce's handling of the female homicides investigation. One month later, a new special prosecutor was appointed to take Ponce's place. 
Ponce was being promoted to a regional law enforcement position in the Chihuahua governor's office. The attorney general commended Ponce, according to journalist Sergio Gonzalez Rodriguez, for the many successful investigations she had completed during her tenure as a special prosecutor. She was finally removed and all the others coming after her were just more of the same. They take one out and put another one in her place, but it's all the same. She was appointed because she was a very pretty face, but nothing else. Not because she actually knew what had to be done there with such a serious situation we had and still have. They don't have, as long as they don't have sympathy, as long as they don't care, and the sense of duty and the will to really stop the serious problem in our country, it's going to be useless to appoint one and then another. The headquarters of the Association of Maquiladoras, a nonprofit that represents the interests of the maquiladora industry, sits at the intersection of two large roads in Juarez. The Ejército Nacional and the Avenida Paseo de la Victoria. It's about half a mile away from the spot where Lilia Alejandra Garcia's body had been found earlier that year. On the opposite corner is a large parcel that had once been a cotton field. It was a common shortcut for pedestrians and a popular site for dumping trash. Journalist Blanca Carmona. It was an empty lot full of grass, an urban lot surrounded by maquiladoras, offices. It's within the urban sprawl. Ciudad Juarez has been growing in a disorganized way. It hasn't developed in an orderly fashion. And that part of town is no different. It was a vacant lot full of garbage. Today, it's an office complex, I think. On November 6, a young boy playing soccer with his friends discovered the body of a young woman hidden in an irrigation ditch that ran through the cotton field parcel. Police officers arriving at the scene found two other women's bodies nearby. Detectives, forensic technicians, and students from the State Police Academy were brought to search for additional remains. The following day, Oscar Mines says they found five more women's bodies under a pile of trash in another irrigation ditch on the opposite side of the field. Well, those bodies were found in two areas of the same lot, an abandoned vacant lot. Uh, the first, the first bodies, we found had days to months of being deposited there. Only one body still had soft tissue. The rest of them were already were already just mummified skin and bones. And the second group we found, they had, they had been buried for months to a year. The first three bodies we found were out in the open, and the rest were buried. They were, they were more careful to hide them. 
Autopsy reports concluded that the eight cotton field victims had been killed at different times over a period of roughly seven months. Journalist Diana Washington Valdez writes that this gap, along with freezer burns on the skin of some of the victims, suggested that after the women were killed, their bodies may have been stored in refrigeration by an organized criminal network, like the one that fed and kidnapped Lilia Alejandra Garcia during her five days in captivity. Up until this point, the bodies of the Juarez serial murder victims had all been found in deserted areas outside the city, like Lote Bravo and Lomas de Poleo. The location of the eight cottonfield bodies and that of Lilia Alejandra Garcia suggested that the killers felt little danger of ever being caught, prompting them to start disposing of their victims inside the city limits. Oscar Maynes believes that this shift indicated that the homicidal group felt completely safe, if not protected, by the authorities. That is, since no one was investigating, nor was anyone interested, they didn't even bother even to hide them anymore. What does it matter if I hide them or not? Why are you going to bother traveling to the entrance of the desert to dispose of bodies if the authorities are never going to react, whether it's due to negligence or even protection by the authorities? Diana Washington Valdez wrote that the killer's shift led many inside the governor's office to voice suspicions that the bodies in the cotton field had been planted to damage him politically. According to Blanca Carmona, The government always says that, that it's a political blow to somehow minimize it or say nothing happened. We have eight bodies, but it's okay. They just want to beat me politically. Femicides in Juarez have been reported since about the year 93. And we've had spikes or moments where many bodies have been located. We have Lomas de Poleo, Cristo Negro, the cotton field, Arroyo El Navajo. Young women are reported missing. A search begins. They are not located. Time goes by and suddenly in a field, you find in a terrain like the cotton field, they start depositing bodies. As an investigative reporter, I visited Ciudad Juarez after the discovery of Lilia Alejandra's body during the investigation of what became known as the Cottonfield Murders. I was standing outside the district attorney's office when Esther Chavescano, a local activist and founder of the Rape Crisis Center, Casa Amiga, arrived and stood next to me. She handed me a cheap notebook. You know, Lydia, I have this. Esther had been clipping every local news story about women or girls who had been disappeared in Chihuahua, adding notes in her neat cursive handwriting that clashed with the contents of every page. I am a rookie, I know nothing about criminology, but I am sure the mafia is behind this. The Carrillo Fuentes brothers, I ask. She 
was silent. In those days, nobody was eager to talk about the Carrillo Fuentes cartel and their murderous business. Even officials didn't dare to pronounce the drug lord's names aloud. It took seven years for us reporters to understand and demonstrate how the disappearance and murders of young women and girls was linked to organized crime. But back then, Esther knew it instinctively. Governor Patricio Martinez and his office had now been overseeing the investigations of the Juarez serial killings for more than three years. Local elections would be taking place soon. With the potential scandal of the Cottonfield case looming over his head, Martinez told investigators that there would be dire consequences for them if the murders weren't solved by Monday, four days after the victims were discovered. One day ahead of the governor's deadline, the Attorney General's office announced that two bus drivers, Gustavo Gonzalez Mesa, a.k.a. La Foca, and Victor Garcia Uribe, a.k.a. El Cerillo, had confessed to abducting, raping, killing and dumping the bodies of the eight Cottonfield victims. Standing before the press, the Attorney General read the names of the eight Cottonfield victims. Veronica Martinez Hernandez, 19 years old. Esmeralda Herrera Monreal, 15. Laura Berenice Ramos, 17. Myra Reyes Solis, 17. Maria Acosta Ramirez, 19. Guadalupe Luna de la Rosa, 20. Barbara Martinez Ramos, 20. And 20 year old Claudia Ibet Gonzalez. The Attorney General said the names had been obtained directly from the accused killers. Most of these women's families, who had not been notified in advance about the press conference, only learned of their daughter's death through the press. The outrage of the women's movement to these atrocities was immediate. Forensic examiner Oscar Minas. It was uh, a Sunday morning. I get to the office and I see a lot of movement. They supposedly already had to self-confess the murderers in a matter of days when we still hadn't even identified the victims. Miraculously, investigators had managed to identify all eight Cottonfield victims and the suspects responsible for their deaths in just two days. The accused killers, Garcia Uribe and Gonzalez Mesa, were arraigned one day after the Attorney General's press conference. Their testimony helped explain the extraordinary speed 
with which investigators had been able to crack the Cottonfield case. On November 9, two days after the Cottonfield bodies were found, Gonzalez Mesa and Garcia Uribe said that police officers wearing Halloween masks burst into the two men's homes with guns drawn. The two bus drivers were taken to another location where they were tortured, threatened, and forced to confess to the Cottonfield killings. The allegations were strikingly similar to those made by Los Rebeldes when the purported gang was arrested and tied to the serial killings of Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif more than five years earlier. Activist and politician Vicky Caraveo. And there comes the presentation of Foca and Cerillo, the two accused Cottonfield killers. Cerillo says, well, yes, my mate Foca and I, of course, we took them, raped them, and then buried them. Her name was... And then he gave the name and both surnames of each victim. How? They made it look very believable. That's when we realized it was all a performance. Because what kind of rapist who takes a woman against her will would rape her, beat her, and kill her? She's going to say, ah, my name is, and my surname, and my other surname. Of course not. That's when you start noticing all the discrepancies and all that things. Forensic examiner Oscar Maynes. In fact, the identification we do have of the victims comes from names that the drivers supposedly gave them, gave the authorities. But these names were randomly drawn from, from the group of missing girls. I mean, it was a political strategy to close the case. They are protecting the killers. They're either doing it intentionally or not, but there is actual protection for the criminals from the state authorities with the consent of the federal authorities. Investigators said they had evidence linking the two suspects to Los Toltecas, the five bus drivers arrested in 1999 and charged with the assault of Nancy Villalba and the murders of 20 other women. Eyes rolled when the Attorney General also suggested that Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif could also be linked to the eight murders. Diana Washington Valdez was at the press conference where authorities announced they had captured the Cottonfield killers. It was very dramatic, very dramatic. Um, you know, press were there, they were like, oh my gosh, you know, wow. I remember that uh, up until then, things had been quiet for a while in Juarez, okay? Nothing, the way of the spectacular had been occurring uh, with the murders. I remember one of the Juarez reporters uh, told me, uh, turned to me at this press conference for the when they presented the information about uh, the the cotton field. Diana, up until then, they hadn't made the announcement yet. You should know by now that Sharif was behind everything. Your only problem is that you don't want to believe that. And then I thought to myself, perhaps he's right. You know, perhaps he's right. Perhaps it's all over. You know, the the nightmare is ended, and they started to get 
uh, less credibility when at the very end, the attorney general at that time mentioned, yes, somebody asked the question, you know, what is press? Could Sharif be involved? And he said, yes, we're looking at that angle right now also. He could very well be part of this, you know. And then we said, oh, there we go, again, forget it. Although he was not charged at the time, Garcia Uribe had been among several additional suspects detained by police when Los Toltecas were arrested in 1999. Authorities had kept tabs on Garcia Uribe during the two years since. When the eight Cottonfield victims were found, he was quickly taken into custody by authorities. Garcia Uribe's wife, had retained the services of an attorney, Sergio Dante Almaraz, when her husband had been detained along with Los Toltecas. Now she called Almaraz again. He went to the attorney general's office, but officials denied that his client was being held by police. Again, I go back to that uh, invisible hand behind the scenes as creative. You know, we're not the narrative. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And of course, in eight days, you're also going to make a lot of mistakes. Officials said that Garcia Uribe and Gonzalez Mesa got high on cocaine and marijuana before their killing sprees. But both men were regularly drug tested to maintain their bus driver's licenses. State records show that both had tested negative for cocaine and marijuana. Oscar Minas. What's interesting is that in the cotton field files of the drivers, there's no evidence whatsoever that they were linked to the homicides, neither circumstantial nor testimonial nor physical evidence that would link them to the murder somehow. The only thing well documented is the torture. After the two bus drivers were remanded to custody on suspicion of murder and aggravated rape, their relatives and lawyers went public with the torture allegations. The attorney general said that the men's wounds were self-inflicted. The suspects had injured themselves while in jail so that they could falsely allege they were tortured by the police. Basically, everything that's wrong in the, in the Mexican system of justice was made evident in the six-year term of Patricio Martinez. I don't think we're much better off, but back then it really was a medieval system. When there is a national and international pressure to solve the murders, when the governor says, this is how we're doing things, I want this case should now for political reasons, and gives instructions to solve it, then the whole system follows. Judges, prosecutors' offices, they grab some people, arrest a couple of drivers, torture them, and make them confess. Then, technically, the case is solved officially. One year after the murder of their daughter, Lilia Alejandra, Norma Andrade and her family were still struggling to heal from the scars of this tragedy. I've always said that I lived in a rose-colored bubble with my daughters and my grandchildren. I spoiled my grandchildren, played with my students, and suddenly that bubble burst. 
I say that evil came into my house. I was a grandmother. My life took a 360-degree turn, and I became a mom again, at 42 years old. It destroyed our family. My husband fell into a depression and couldn't recover. He died a year after Alejandro's murder. The doctor explained that it was due to the depression itself. Cancer cells were formed in his lungs. And by the time they realized it, they were everywhere. I still think that, <laughs> with all my bitterness and all the pain I was going through, I enjoyed my grandchildren very much. If it hadn't been for them, I don't think I would have gotten up. If I was lying in bed not wanting anything, Heather would grab the edge of the bed. And then she'd stretch her head and say, Mommy, I'm hungry. And I had to get up and give her something to eat. I had to get up and make Caleb's baby food. So they made me get up. They got me through it. I think if it hadn't been for them, I wouldn't be here. What do they remember about, about Alejandra? The boy, nothing. He was five months old and doesn't remember anything. Heather does. She does talk about it. When she was three years old in, in my house in Ciudad Juarez, Alejandra, she would sit on the stairs. I had a picture of Alejandra when she turned 15. And Heather would sit on the last step and we'd suddenly hear her laughing nonstop. I said, what are you laughing at? I'm talking to my mom, she would say. I'm talking to Nanita. And other times, we'd hear her crying. But why are you crying? Because mommy is sad. It makes you feel helplessness, anger. There's a mom who says she wants to burn everything down. Well, I told her I understand. Because I think the rage we have against the government against the authorities is huge and is justified because they do nothing to protect our girls. They don't do anything to arrest our daughter's attackers. On the contrary, they fabricate culprits. And the real criminal is walking the streets as if nothing had happened. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, 
Arturo Mercado Jr. y Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinoza Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.